Welcome to New Books and Film. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. One of the continuing issues of the entertainment industry is the treatment of women in movies and television. Even with a larger number of female writers, producers, and directors, roles often follow stereotypical and negative conventions. Today, I will be speaking with the editors and four of the authors of Smart Chicks on Screen, representing women's intellect in film and television. Edited by Laura Matum de Amor. The book was published in 2014 by Roman and Littlefield and is part of the film and history series edited by Cynthia J. Miller. In drawing together 13 essays on a variety of aspects of the depiction of women in film and television, Laura wanted to review how women are limited or ostracized by their intelligence, whether showing intellectual growth assisted women, as well as whether there are women in film and television who are intelligent without also being objectified. I'm happy to have Laura and the essay writers with me today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with them. Hello, everyone. Hello. 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 Hi. Uh, as I was saying before the call, before I started the recording, this is the first time I've ever done a group this big. So it's going to be a very interesting call. And I think the hopefully the listeners will enjoy the interactivity of a big group like this. So let me first start with the editor of the book. And we've already said at the beginning that the book is called Smart Chicks on Screen, representing women's intellect in film and television. And the editor of the book is Laura D'Amour. And uh, hi, Laura. Hi. Um, what brought you to this book? Uh, before we start talking to the individual writers, I think it's worthwhile to get a sense, especially as an editor versus someone who obviously writes an entire book. You've got a slightly different um, job, so to speak. So what brought you to this book? Indeed, as an editor, you do have a different job. And I actually really love editing books. I love the role as an editor because I like to be able to bring people together and find conversations between pieces that isn't necessarily uh, there in a book that you write by yourself. And so I've had a lot of fun with this. It started actually at the Film and History Conference two years ago with an area called Chicks with Brains and the same subtitle representing women's intellect in film and television. And it was an area of uh, maybe 12 papers And we had a lot of fun with the topic. And I realized that it was a topic that a lot of people were interested in. And so um, Cindy Miller has a film and history book series. um, And she manages to get uh, people together at Film and History to submit proposals for that particular series. And um, when I pitched this book, she was super interested. And thankfully for all of us, Roman and Littlefield was as well. Um, And so the book basically emerged from this idea of um, the tension between the idea of women's intellect and women's representation on film and television. Um, Because oftentimes, historically, in uh, in film and television, women's potential as smart and independent has been overshadowed by plot lines about their beauty, about their madness, or about their romantic interest. And film and television has tended to fail to reflect the realities of the gains that women have actually made, uh, particularly in American culture and society since second wave feminism, since the 1970s. And it's actually true that in our cultural heart of American culture, 
um, we still want women in the home. And we know this from the kinds of um, polls um, and statistical data that organizations like the Pew Research Center do to find out what the temperature is of the American public in terms of what they think is best for, for example, raising children. And by and large, the people of the United States still want women raising children. They still want mothers in the home, at least part-time, if not full-time. And so that kind of um, reality, the, the reality is that women are working, doesn't match our desire, um, which is that women should be home. And so what I found is that ambivalence is actually uh, projected onto screen, onto our film and TV products. Um, and even when there's a shift at the individual level, for example, women who have career aspirations or who wants to get a higher education, even when individual people feel like they're empowered to do that, as a collective we in American society and culture, we still don't necessarily feel that way about women as a whole. We still want them in the home. And so thinking about the representation of intellect, which oftentimes in this text links to work, um, I thought was a, a fascinating place to go with a book that brings together um, authors at various stages in their academic career, um, also from an international audience. So we had various perspectives to weigh in on this issue. That's great. Yeah, there's actually 13 authors. I don't think you had any repeats, right? It's 13 different people, right? That's correct. And we've got four of them with us today. Uh, before I start talking to the individuals, why don't you give us your background? Tell us a little bit about uh, your education, what led you to the point where you are today. I got my Ph.D. in American and New England Studies at Boston University. Um, and my interest there was in representations of women, probably not surprising, in um, film and literature and history. I'm also interested in the history of feminism and in contemporary feminism and feminist movements. Um, I'm currently an assistant professor of American Studies at Roger Williams University, which is in Bristol, Rhode Island. Um, I also am the co-founder of a gender and sexuality studies minor that is interdisciplinary um, at RWU. Um, yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, what I'd like to do first off is to sort of meet everybody, and then um, we'll come back and we'll give you a little bit of chance to talk about what led you to each of these folks. And uh, it's unfortunate that we only have four, but we could probably get good information out of ev from everybody. But four is better. It's a very good idea. And actually, Laura, this was your idea to bring everybody together, and I think it was a good one. Uh, let's start with Stephen R. Duncan. Uh, his essay is the first in the book, and it was called Not Just Born Yesterday, Judy Holliday, The Red Scare, and the Misuses of Hollywood's Dumb Blonde Image. How are you, Stephen? Good. I'm good. How are you? Great. Why don't you give us uh, sort of like what Laura did, give me some background about where you are, what's your education, what led you to write something like this? Sure. Uh, I'm a newly minted uh, PhD, just received my PhD from the University of Maryland in history uh, this spring. Uh, I'm now an assistant professor of history at Bronx Community College, CUNY, here in New York City. And uh, at University of Maryland, I focused on 20th century U.S. cultural history, broadly speaking. Um, and uh, here, here at the Bronx, I teach a little bit of everything, a little bit of world history, U.S. history, that's, that sort of thing. Um, but what led me to the to 
um, the essay that's that's in the book is sort of an extension of my dissertation that I'm that I'm now revising in, as a book manu- manuscript, uh, which sort of looks very broadly at entertainment circles where they overlap with sort of left-wing political activism. And uh, as part of my research, I came across Judy Holliday as a really interesting historical uh, subject. And I, I, it's as often happens in a large project like that, I had to limit what I could say about her in the dissertation, but I had a lot of material that I thought was really interesting. And when I, when I saw the opportunity to, uh, to turn that into to one of the book chapters, um, uh, Laura was kind enough to, to include me and, and uh, I was able to, to bring that, that research together um, and look at Judy Holliday's career and particularly the, the film that sort of defined her career um, in this particular uh, interesting historical moment in the U.S. Uh, at the, the cusp of the start of the Red Scare. Um, and, and the fact that her political activism uh, had effects on her political career, but in particular in her representation in the public sphere um, as, a, as, a, as an intelligent woman, very specifically. Yeah, uh, I must admit the, uh, the uh, Red Scare, that period of time is my particular interest. I have a master's in history or and one of my masters is in history, and that's what I wrote about was Cold War period. And uh, not so much Red Scare. Mine was more the um, fear of the bomb, but I, the period's all sort of wrapped up. So it was an interesting – I found your essay. To, uh, it definitely dovetailed with some of the things I already knew about. So, I've, you know, it was a good way to – I thought it was a good, perfect way to start off the book. So um, anyway – that's great. We'll come back to you in a second. Uh, let me move on now to Stefania Margitu. Uh, yep. Her essay is Mad Men's Peggy Olson, a pre-feminist champion in a post-feminist TV landscape. Uh, first off, let's get your background now. You know, what what brings you to this position, I mean, to this particular uh, subject as far as your writing is concerned? So this essay came out of my MA thesis, when I was at University College London, the master's was in film studies, actually. I think I was the only one in my class who focused just on TV. And um, the, the wider thesis focused on Peggy as well as Joan and Betty and more of the female characters. But I really wanted to key in on Peggy for this because I just think the character and her narrative development really personifies the, the rise of, of the intellect and, you know, Mad Men as a period piece of sorts is also a commentary on um, contemporary contemporary women working in male-dominated uh, environments. So that's, that's what really intrigued me the most about the show in a lot of ways, too. And one of the things is that Mad Men is an interesting concept, given that it's supposed to take place in the 60s, and it has received a lot of writing partly because of its historical underpinnings and um, some aspects of how much of it is really 60s and how much of it is a modern interpretation. So uh, I could see how your Peggy Olsen would definitely fit into the overall narrative of the book and also the show. Absolutely, and there's a, there's a quote, I think, in, in the chapter about the writers of the show who are predominantly women say, you know, we aren't we aren't getting this from the '60s. These are things that have happened to us in our careers. Yeah, it's it's. T- I actually lived. I mean, a little probably older than most of you, and I lived through 
at least to remember a good portion of the 60s. And uh, any it, it is interesting watching, and of course I studied the 60s as well, so watching anything that's supposed to take place in a past period, whether it's the 60s, 50s, or whatever, it is interesting to see um, how much of it comes through as far as realism and how much of it is just realistic and the differences. So uh, that's why I found yours to be a good uh, essay as far as, uh, the time period and everything and, and how it actually covers it or doesn't cover it for real. Okay. Um, and then we have Deanna J. Reese, her essay, Stories Worth Telling, How Carrie Washington Balances Brains, Beauty, and Power in Hollywood. Um, more up to date as far as uh, um, the stories that uh, as opposed to the, the other two that we've talked about so far, but Deanna, what what about you? What, uh, this is an interesting storyline because Kerry Washington is character is probably the, of them all of the, of all these TV characters at least that we're talking about. She is the f- only one that is the main character. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what brought you to writing about uh, Scandal and Kerry Washington's character. Um. Well, um, I will start off. I will answer that question. Um, I am a graduate from the University of Missouri, Columbia, and I'm currently an associate professor in the history department and the uh, program of Africana Studies at Fresno State. And I also, um, like my colleagues, um, do um, 20th century uh, U.S. history, social, cultural, uh, urban. Uh, But a lot of my work has focused on beauty and femininity for African-American women. So part of what brought me to this topic has to do with just ongoing research um, in which I've looked at how African-American women in early 20th century culture uh, attempted to redefine um, beauty. And a lot of my work has looked at uh, one of the pioneers of black beauty culture, uh, Annie Turnbull Malone. And not many people know about her because uh, m- most of the scholarship uh, has spoken more about uh, her rival uh, of that period, which was Madam C.J. Walker. So I've happened, uh, I've written a lot about her. And uh, so I was really intrigued um, by this particular call uh, for papers. And Carrie Washington, I have to admit, I didn't know really um, a lot about her when I started writing this particular essay. But I really became really fascinated, one, by the call um, for this anthology. And I want to thank um, Laura for bringing us all together and, and uh, again, <clears throat> um, helping us to think more about this topic and beginning a conversation on it. And with regards to Kerry Washington, uh, she is, uh, I think, an incredible talent. And the more that I got a chance to spend some time uh, digging and really looking at her, not only in terms of um, the scandal, but also the other roles that she's done, and then a little bit more about her background, I recognized how much she really, you know, fit uh, in in terms of um, thinking about this topic. So uh, just that was where I began. Uh, and in terms of the stories part with regards to the title of the essay, um, much of it actually came from a quote um, by Carrie herself. 
Um, she was an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary major in college, and she talked about how um, it's always been something that she's valued as an actress. And so she said that writing stories or telling stories, excuse me, telling stories is really uh, what has inspired her as an actress. And I thought that was interesting because as a historian, I write stories. So I just was really interested in that intersection. And that's what helped inspire uh, the title okay. of the essay. It's, 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 it is an interesting one, like I said before, of, of the ones where she is the lead. And that's still pretty unusual, both in film and in television. Uh, yes, it is. So uh, it was one of the interesting aspects of her as a subject to, uh, to write about. Uh, and then the last author we have but is Amanda Stone. Uh, her essay, Brains, Beauty, and Feminist Television, The Women of the Big Bang Theory. Um, obviously an interesting topic for a variety of reasons, but uh, what made you decide that this was something you wanted to write about, and what was your background and to led you to this point? Um, well, I'm a current graduate student at the Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia. Um, I just completed my master's in art history as of yesterday. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, um, thank you. And I'm now working on my master's in film studies. So I sort of um, did a little bit of both. Um, and this chapter really came out of um, nothing that I'm working on for school. Um, I actually um, read a review of the Big Bang Theory that I really, really passionately disagreed with. <laughs> and um, I just started researching and watching the show and sort of obsessively watching the show. And I, you know, reached the, the, found this call for papers and realized this might actually work with what I'm arguing. That, that maybe the, the, the Big Bang Theory, um, although it gets a lot of negative press for the women in the show, um, I... I think when you critically engage with the characters, um, you see that their intellect really has a chance to shine in this show that I don't think um, exists in a lot of television shows, especially about female scientists. Right. The interesting thing about that show, and we'll talk about it in more detail in a few minutes, but is that it is such a change. It changed literally by adding two female characters, particularly scientists, completely changed the show. And you almost have to wonder, had they not done that, would the show still be on? Would they have been able to continue a, a story about, you know, uh, this whole thing with just one woman character? Right. And by bringing in the other two, the the, the other two later on, it's that it actually, I think, helped to keep the show more fresh. And it, it does, lately I've noticed, it used to get, people said good things about this, this series, but lately it's starting to get a lot more negative press and I'm not completely sure why, but anyway, uh, we'll talk about that in more detail in a second. So, as I say, once again, thank you all for being here. Let's come back now, though, to Stephen and first off, if I can once again come back to Laura and ask her, uh, what did Stephen off, Stephen's uh, ideas offer to you as far as what you believed uh, as what he would bring to the book overall, and, and is it is it unusual, or was this? Did you really plan his to be the first one, or how did you decide the order of the of the essays? I did. Uh, I did decide the order of the essays, and I uh, purposefully put Stevens first um, because I thought it was a good bookend to the front end of this particular collection. Um, the title of the book is, is "Smart Chicks on Screen," and one part of that is the notion of the chick, and that that notion of the chick is um, it embodies a sort of tension 
between a derogatory term, like that's such a chick thing to do that often wraps up um, women's agency in their identity as sometimes emotional, sometimes naive, sometimes ditzy. Um, And in this particular collection, I'm sort of subverting that. And I'm imagining the reclaimed chick, like the smart chick, the tough chick, um, the cool chick. And so Stephen's chapter, I thought, encapsulated that idea of the blonde, ditzy chick who we can then subvert in a really interesting way. Um, And so I was fascinated by his story, first of all, of the actress, um, Judy Holliday, who's herself highly intelligent, um, but is a character who's represented as naive. Um, And audiences were often conflating the the actors um, with their characters. And here Judy Holliday deploys that misperception um, to her advantage and actually intentionally plays the dumb blonde to escape her association with communism um, during the McCarthy hearings. And so I liked how this chapter um, deeply explored the tensions between intellect and beauty um, and also between reality and fiction. Um, and as you said at the beginning, um, a great way to start off. Yeah, Stephen, I was going to say that this, in in many ways, yours is the most unusual of the people we're talking to today because yours is the one that is more historical. Uh, of the other three people, who are much more current with their uh, what they're writing about. You're writing a more historical setting in. Probably less known than the others. So the question is, who was Judy Holliday, and what brought her to being wrapped up into the Red Scare? So that uh, this whole issue of how she was, she allowed herself to be treated or treated herself in order to avoid problems. Yeah, it's interesting that um, that you say you know not not a household name anymore, and that's that's actually sort of integral to the to the story the fact that that her career was not destroyed but diminished by the red scare um you know she was poised to sort of take the position that in in hollywood that uh marilyn monroe ended up actually sort of taking um uh so um so to so to give you the background of that uh judy holiday uh was from a, a working class jewish family in new york city uh, grew up in a in a very kind of left wing political home. Had family members who were you know uh, uh, political activists, union organizers, people like that. Uh, not always involved in the Communist Party, uh, sort of across the the left spectrum from just sort of union organizers or socialists, all the way to to a few family members who who were actually Communist Party members in the in the nineteen thirties, for example. And her career actually started. Um, as a nightclub performer at a, at a New York uh, nightclub called the Village Vanguard, uh, which itself is part of part of my broader story, um, a place that was owned by by uh, a pair of left wing activists um, and and tended to feature performers who had sort of po- uh, political or at least topical material in them. Everybody from Woody Guthrie to later Harry Belafonte, people like that. So, so Judy Holiday's early career was as a as a nightclub comedian. She was part of a uh, part of a, a performance troupe that did uh, satirical sketches and things based on topical material, oftentimes uh, called the Reviewers. And she she went on from that to to just say, I, I think I want to try to make a career in Hollywood, and, and ended up doing that by by a, a 
long route, but the the kind of the central path, the main path of her of her ultimate film success was the fact that she uh, performed the role um, uh, of this dumb blonde role um, of uh, Billy Don in what was first a play in New York City, uh, Born Yesterday, which was then picked up um, and produced as a Hollywood film in 1950. And so it was sort of the it, the film was was widely successful. Um, Born Yesterday uh, was was a, 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 a box office hit, uh, but also highly successful for Judy Holiday. She she won uh, the the award for Best Actress in the Academy Awards in 1951, and and as I say, really was poised to to she she was really uh, the the um, the actress that really sort of brought together the image of what it meant to be a dumb blonde on screen in a way that, that then really uh, becomes more widely associated with, with Marilyn Monroe, but it was actually Julie, Judy Holiday that established that kind of screen characterization first. Um, and, and it was really, yeah, the, the association with, with communism when she was called to testify um, for the Senate committee uh, that, that put a damper on, on her future career. She still continued to make movies through the 50s, but they were never as popular, and uh, the roles were a little, were more sort of um, uh, toss away roles that the studio just would give her uh, to complete her contract. Yeah, I, one of the things I noticed in reading was that uh, she chose to use that so that rather than having to either deny as a deny being a communist or knowing any communists or admitting or naming names, as the phrase usually goes, she chose to. Mm-hmm to deny knowing but a different way or and, and it related to the character that she was playing yeah precisely um laura put it really well i mean she basically deflected these these accusations of communism by embracing this representation that she had created of what a dumb blonde was by actually embracing that as a public persona um so walking into the senate to the senate um hearings and literally sort of performing as this character, Billy Dawn, and saying, I couldn't remember. And, and what's interesting, when you, when you really look at the, the transcripts, the fact that she, uh, in reality, was highly intelligent, which was, interestingly, part of her public persona um, off-screen. People knew this. It was talked about in the press. She had a, she had a 172 IQ, all these things. Um, so, so when you really look carefully at the transcripts, you can see that she's she's outwitting the senators throughout the, the course of the interview. She's leading them down these paths using wordplay and puns and things, um, all the time pretending that she can't remember what she was involved with politically and deflecting that attention from her. So, so it, in a, it's, it was a really interesting dichotomy, the fact that she's highly intelligent and she's using that intelligence even while covering herself protectively with this sort of um, this mask of this dumb blonde uh, performance. Yeah, it's interesting and unfortunately we don't have the author here, but the next chapter was in the book is about uh, Marilyn Monroe, right, mm-hmm. Laura? So uh, yes. it actually probably even more nicely presents the differences between the two. Yeah, indeed. Um, in Stephen's chapter, he talks about how... Um, the role for was it some like it hot yeah was yeah. supposed to be judy holiday yeah she was um oh, i'm sorry no not some like it hot uh it's um 
oh, I knew I would go blank on that. Which film? <laughs> Regardless, though, they were they were compatriots, so to speak, in the in the um, in the film industry, and they could have been cast in very similar roles. It just happened that Marilyn Monroe ended up going in one direction and Judy Holiday ended up going in another, but they were both considered the blonde bombshells. Um, either one of them could have been represented as smart or ditzy blonde, um, depending on the film and depending on the project. Okay. That's great. Uh, okay, Laura, what, let's, let's move on to Stefania's. Uh, what obviously, like I say, this is different in the sense that this is a television um, role. But as we've been seeing a lot, like in the more recent times, television seems to be telling more interesting stories in some ways than the movies are. So, what uh, led you to believe that Stefania's uh, ideas would fit well into the book? Sure. Um, so I loved that Stefania called Peggy Olson one of the greatest feminist characters in television mm-hmm. history. Um, she argues that Peggy's success is not overshadowed by her decisions not to adhere to traditional gender roles. And that's a unique frame through which to view Peggy. Uh, Mad Men is not usually regaled for its feminist potential because the good old boys of the show overshadow that. Um, but a close reading indicates that this is in fact a story, a strong thread in the story. And so I selected this chapter because I liked the way that Stefania read the past through the lens of the present, um, which you talked about already a little bit earlier. Um, even though it's about the 1960s, it's really about the ni- uh, 21st century because it's being written and cast and uh, produced in the 21st century. And so the post-feminist sensibility that Stefania talks about, um, in which people believe that feminism is over and done, is so pervasive in our own film and television um, now. And so her chapter is as much a critique of post-feminism um, as it was a close reading of Mad Men's Peggy Olson as a feminist text, and I thought that fit perfectly um, in the conversation of the larger book. Yes, Stefania, I know one of the things that I even said in my introduction is that, uh, which will be on the final recording, uh, was the idea that even though we now have so many women involved in producers, writers, um, directors, we still have these issues related to uh, post-feminism uh, and, and material. And so uh, talk a little bit about how Peggy Olson, about how she gets the view of Peggy Olson verse as a as you said in your in your uh, title, as a pre-feminist, but it's actually being portrayed in a post-feminist period. Sure, and I apologize for not stating what I'm currently doing now also real quick. Um, I'm a PhD student at uh, the University of Southern California Critical Studies Department, and actually my work is both, is going to be kind of a mixture of feminist television criticism, but also analyzing the production uh, background. So I'll be focusing on a lot of women showrunners. So I was also interested in Matthew Weiner as a showrunner, but more interested in the women as writers. And this parallels, you know, thinking about Peggy because, and like you said, TV is offering a lot of interesting stuff right now. And I think the, the potential is in seeing this narrative of Peggy. You know, the, the first episode, you actually, you know, you're, you're introduced to her. It's her first day at work. 
you see the office, everything through her eyes. She's she's coming from, you know, secretary school, and this amazing narrative shows how she's risen from the the stunner pool, you know, to become someone who makes the equivalent of six figures in today's, you know, which is rare in in the '60s and now. And I think because. Peggy doesn't have the tools or the vocabulary of second wave feminism that was on the cusp at the time. And, you know, the show is 1968, 1969. Now it's not even, it's not even in the conversation. You know, the word feminism has not been uttered in the show at all. There's, there's conversations about the civil rights era, of course, which was difficult, you know, even for the, the guys on Fifth Avenue to avoid, but feminism was just not something on her mind. And, it's the singularity of her situation. You know, she's the only woman copywriter, copy chief that she knows of. She doesn't know any other women in her situation. So this isolation is, you know, is something that occurred in pre-feminism, pre-second wave feminism, but is also happening now when you think about post-feminism. So it's, sim- it's a similar mindset, you know, that women can't have it all, you know, because having it all in the 60s, you know, in the Betty Friedan era was the January Jones character, Betty, you know, but Mm -hmm. we also see she, she absolutely doesn't have it all, and the show went away from that, you know, traditional dismantling of suburban ideology into what's going on at the office, and what's going on in the office for a woman like Peggy. Right. Uh, We've seen that with other TV shows where they go into it with a specific idea in mind and then as time goes on whether it works or not is where you start to see shifts in how the the show continues on um, talk a little bit about how the treatment of women in Mad Men is it is it what did you what have you found as far as how it actually differs or is the same as to what people from the 60s would be expecting yeah, so I think, you know, Mad Men, it's so funny because people either said, you know, critics either said, the show is sexist, but <laughs> it's feminist because it's showing what sexism was like at the time, you know, in a very real way. So the episode where Peggy gets her first break because she's, you know, she's creative and she comes up with a tagline unknowingly. It's like, you know, they compare it to like, seeing a dog, you know, talk or something like that, you know, it's just showing that treatment that women do not have this ability to be uh, an intellectual, you know, to have, you know, the same capabilities of men is just, you know, outstanding and showing, showing how difficult it is for someone like Peggy to, to reach that level, you know, not because she's not intellectual, because we even see through the, the Joan character that she's very capable of, of carrying out creative work. But she's she's put down in that, you know, administrative role, that secretary role, which is happening, you know, today for women who are who are held down to those kind of roles rather than the managerial roles. So I think it's a very, you know, I I did grow up in the 60s. You know, I can't say for myself it was, you know, realistic. I know a lot of women have said it's from that era have said it's difficult to watch because it, it rings too much of a of a bell for their for their past. But what what can we say about that in terms of how much has changed, you know, for right now? Women are still making less money. You know, women are still holding less less managerial roles, less leadership roles. So I think the show delving from, you know, the male anti-hero and focusing on the women is, you know, one of the most brilliant things about it. 
Yeah, because the show actually does it. Obviously, we're talking about it as it relates to women, but we see other things, similar things, especially, for example, in early episodes when the whole issue of the department store, the the woman who is in charge of the department store and happens yep. to be Jewish, and the question becomes, don't you want to go to one of your store, you know, your, your ad agencies, the idea oh, yeah. that, that no matter what it is, whether it's race or gender or, in this case, uh, nationality or religion, that it depends on... Um, that there's still a difference that they 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 would understand his the, her needs better than than the madman that she actually goes to. Absolutely, and another thing that you know is, is is great about following Peggy through this narrative and the ups and the downs is that this this is very rare in you know post feminist television shows because as as I quoted Amanda Lotz, you know you either have you know kind of an Ally McBeal character who you know did did law school at harvard we don't you know we don't see that part but she's automatically kind of assimilated into this liberal feminist agenda that or women who can't have it all who can't balance life life and work you know and they have this this retreatism right going back home not not being able to fully fully live out their their work ambitions and retreating so this is something that Peggy never does. She never retreats. And it's, it's very difficult not to, but seeing seeing that push is, is really great and really rare again. Right. Well, uh, Laura, um, now we've, we're up to Deanna Reese's uh, um, essay dealing with Kerry Washington. So what brought her to your attention as far as what she wanted to write about? Uh, I was drawn to Deanna's chapter because it considers the relationship between actors and their characters and examines what is at stake when those representations are of black women um, in a media landscape in which black women are a minority and strong, intelligent roles for black women, even more so the stakes are significantly higher for black actors to choose roles that are, that showcase talent and, uh, and success. So Deanna uses Carrie Washington as an actor and Olivia Pope as a character to describe how this can be done well. Um, and she argues that it matters not only to Washington's career, but to audiences' lives, to a political climate, and to an activist sensibility. Um, so I chose this chapter for all of those reasons, because it showcases a strong female in life and work, and because it considers the intersections of race in her characterization. Yeah, Deanna, I think when most times you hear people talking about the series Scandal, they're talking about Kerry Washington. She is more so than anyone else as far as that series is concerned, is so well known. And it, and it is unusual given that she is a uh, the lead the lead person in a series. And we see we have a few other shows like that, but uh, in many ways, Kerry Washington, and as, as Laura mentioned, also with the racial differences as well um how is her depiction and the, the fact that she, there she is allowed more or less as opposed to some of the other folks we've talked about to show her intelligence as a character uh yes uh she is and you know just you know thinking about um carrie washington uh in this role uh as you have already mentioned a couple of times it's just so rare um to see 
um, black women um, as have the commanding role and be featured as smart and competent uh, on television. And it made me, you know, think more historically about where Kerry Washington uh, fits into this this matrix and um, what her role in scandal actually means. And the more that uh, I dug, I found that, you know, this was the first time in 40 years that we had had a black woman in a primetime series um, with such a role. And even the last time that this was featured, uh, not anyone was able uh, to do as well as Carrie has done um, um, at this point in time. And so I was really intrigued by that, um, particularly because, again, um, when we talk about black women in television and film, uh, they are so often known for their roles as the cooks and the maids and um, even as prostitutes. And given the fact that I also am so bothered by the way in which women, but particularly black women, are also depicted uh, in reality television, made me even more drawn to uh, trying to decipher what, what it was about Kerry Washington in this particular role, but also Kerry Washington herself, what made her choose this role, and why are people so uh, also, why is she so appealing um, to audiences? So when we talk about Olivia Pope, I mean, yes, it's her femininity, it's her intellect, it's her uh, savvy uh, as well, but um, <clears throat> it's also about the writing. Uh, you have to go back to uh, the very individuals that are, you know, telling us about this Washington fixer and who she is based upon uh, the life of uh, Judy Smith, uh, because, you know, Olivia's, Olivia Pope uh, is a uh, what Judy Smith was uh, in reality. Um, And so uh, with that, uh, it just, I was able um, to um, spend some time thinking about also how um, black female uh, writers and producers, particularly Shonda Rhimes and what she was able to do differently uh, with Washington uh, in this particular uh, role. And so that was, uh, a part of what helped to uh, drive my understanding um, of, of Carrie Washington in this particular part, uh, but also looking at the ways in which even when you have successful African-American women on television or even in film, how they still very much uh, are represented in ways that go back to these controlling images um, of African-American women. So whether we're talking about the Mammy, um, the Jezebel, um, or uh, others, it's, it's, it's one of those um, particular aspects that always tend to follow Black women. And so one of the ways, one of the areas that I look at in this particular essay is how hope encounters this very curious repackaging of these controlling images uh, for African-American women uh, and the way in which she plays into them and the ways in which she's different. So that was one particular part uh, that was uh, very interesting for me as a historian uh, to think about it in that particular aspect. And then also to look at Kerry Washington herself 
and the roles that she chooses and to get a better sense of how uh, her own background, her own education, and also uh, her personality play a role in, in terms of the, uh, the choices that she's made as an actress. So all of that was very um, interesting to me. And I think uh, in terms of Carrie Washington in this particular role uh, is, you know, making a positive uh, stance in terms of helping to bring the experiences of more women of color uh, to television and in showing that, uh, that they can uh, play roles that are relevant, that are accessible, and also at least attempt to create a much more positive representation of who they are rather than these um, classic stereotypical kinds of imagery. We still have to deal with that because right. that's still very much a part of it. But again, I think this is uh, a departure from that, at least a, 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 a small departure that I think is significant. And I definitely wanted uh, to talk about the ways in which she is doing that. And particularly because uh, her, again, her personal, her personal politics um, plays, plays a role in how she um, thinks about and conceptualizes Olivia Pope and uh, also what those representations mean to black women. Yeah, I, I think the longer any, telev any television show, more so than movies, because movies tend not to be serial. But, I mean, on a, a television show, the, mo the longer it goes, the more likely, depending on the show, especially that the, the actors themselves become so... Uh, involved in the character that they're they become very important not just as actors but also as the custodian so to speak of the character and therefore especially as shows tend to go longer you have a changeover in personnel writers come and go and even showrunners come and go and so you depend a lot on um the the actors to have a better sense as to what their characters are or aren't yes okay um, Laura, the last person, and I said that already, I actually hate referring to people as the last because that's <laughs> not what I mean. Uh, let's talk to Amanda about her, um, essay, what the Big Bang Theory, as I as we already talked about briefly, is an unusual show in many ways, but, uh, as far as how it's changed because of addition of, of female characters. So, um... What did Laura bring, or excuse me, what did Amanda bring to, to uh, the collection? Amanda argues right from the get-go that the multitude of female characters in the Big Bang Theory represents a realistic spectrum of female intelligences and that they question the notion of normal television. She argues that they question assumptions that science isn't a place for girls and women, uh, showing instead that women who flourish, uh, the show itself, I mean, uh, shows women who flourish and lead there. Um, and they do this without being ostracized for their appearance. And they do this without losing their sexual agency. And so it's a fascinating read of this show, which acknowledges that the show's not perfect, but that it makes a significant shift in the way that smart women are depicted on television. And I liked how this chapter serves as a sort of bookend for the latter half of the book. It's the second to last chapter. It's not the last chapter, but in a lot of ways, 
Um, I think it uh, serves as an interesting juxtaposition to uh, Stevens, which was the first chapter. Um, By examining the tension between intelligence and the rest of women's lives. So uh, the characters on this television show um, are, are allowed to be... Uh, characterized by their social lives, by their romantic lives, by their careers, by their education. They're offered the opportunity to be whole people um, in a field that is dominated by men, the field that is science. Right. Um, Amanda, um, as we already sort of talked about, but uh, it's an interesting, unusual situation for a TV series to pretty much stop on a dime and redo itself by adding two quote-unquote brainy women. Uh, who weren't there at the beginning, and even as they came in, we weren't completely sure whether they were going to stick around. Uh, we've seen female characters come and go on the show, but it seems like uh, these two so stuck. So how have Bernadette and Amy's characters changed the series? And even as it relates to the depiction of the other female character, Penny, who is obviously not a scientist. Well, I think it... And you're correct. The moment that um, Amy and Bernadette were both introduced to the show, and it was around the same time in the third season, I do believe, um, it became, we, we focused less on really how dumb Penny is, right? And that's sort of the, the underlying joke in much of the first few seasons, and that continues um, to this day, which is why the show isn't perfect, right? So, um, but we offer, we have these um, sort of four male characters, and I think the show... Um, was really missing something by having these four male characters and then having just the singular dumb blonde next door. Um, I don't think that it would have, uh, have lasted as long. Um, I don't think there's as much rich material without everyone becoming sort of a caricature of themselves. Um, there's only so so many times that we can call Penny dumb before we, you know, we've, we've, we've now circled back around. So Amy and Bernadette are... Um, really interesting compliments. Um, Bernadette is um, just what one critic called her, which I disagree with, but stickingly feminine, right? So just sort of high voice. She's She wears dresses. Um, her hair is always perfectly styled, but at the same time, she's brilliant. Um, she gets her doctorate. Um, she gets a very well-paid job. Um, and then you have Amy, who is f- sort of frumpy and um, really shy and uncomfortable, and they work together um, because there are women who are shy and uncomfortable and there are women who are Bernadette. And so it offers, when you see the three of them in one scene together, it sort of offers you the chance to see um, something that's a little bit more realistic in my eyes. No sitcom is going to be realistic, but the chance to actually see what happens when you put three very different women together um, and they sort of feed off of one another and they really change one another and their friendship is one that I think is is just ripe for um, interrogation. I mean, they have such a friendship that's built on respect that is missing oftentimes in sitcoms. Yeah, I think as each of them, like you were saying, when they were introduced, Bernadette, we actually first meet, I think, what is a waitress? Yeah, at, with, at the Cheesecake Factory with Penny. <laughs> I don't know how quickly they suddenly made the point that she was also a scientist or <laughs> going to school at the time, but uh, it is interesting that that's how she first appears. And and then Amy, of course, when she gets introduced, it's almost just a mirror image of Sheldon, the, right. the, the male character she paired off with as far as... and then But then pretty quickly, her character changes as well to become her own self as opposed to just a, a female Sheldon. Right, and they offered the chance 
sort of all three of the women and, and the men too, to a certain extent, but all three of the female characters, the main female characters have really gotten a chance to change since, um, especially since season one, but Amy and Bernadette in season three, um, you know, Amy has now, she's sort of exploring her sexuality and she's becoming a little bit more comfortable in social situations. Um, you know, and, and Penny is, you know, getting a, now in the new season that I didn't get a chance to write about is, you know, has a great job, you know, pharmaceutical sales. Um, and so they give him a chance to really sort of change instead of staying that one static character that unfortunately um, is sort of a hallmark of a Chuck Lorre film or a television show is to sort of stay the same old, you know, two and a half men sort of right. um, on the same level. But they've really gotten a chance to change over the years, which I think is interesting. And it actually changed all the male characters, too, because Absolutely. every single male character has changed because of the addition of the women. I mean, obviously, right at the beginning with Penny and then little by little. Right. But, um, so it has been an interesting way to change a television series by introducing characters that weren't there at the beginning and make well, the most of the fact because they're female. Right. And when I think the moment that the sort of changed for me is the, there was an episode where Bernadette um, admits that she hates children, right? And it's sort of a funny episode that, you know, she's, I never want children. And for me, it was sort of eye-opening that we have this sort of blonde, beautiful woman who's um, high voice, sort of stereotypical um, feminine. And she's telling us, I really hate children. And I think that they're loud and obnoxious and I don't want them at the end of the episode, they come to the, you know, she and Howard decide that when they do have children, Howard will stay home. And then that's how they will raise their family. And it was at that moment where I thought, you don't see this very often. Um, you don't see sort of that that the, the problem solving, you know, is that Howard, they'll switch gender roles. And, and now Howard will be the stay at home parent. And it, I think at that moment, that's when the Big Bang Theory stopped being sort of let's make fun of Penny and let's sort of see how these women and these men interact with one another and alter each other. Right. Okay. Um, I think at this point, then I'd sort of like to do another quick go through with everyone, ask a sort of a finalized of a final question, but we'll leave Laura for last since she's the, uh, ringleader, so to speak. So, uh, let's go back to Stephen. What are you working on now? Are there things that you hopefully will either work off? You've already mentioned this a little bit, but what you've already done or, uh, what, kind of inf uh, material are you working on now yeah my main focus right now is is to, to revise my dissertation into a book manuscript so um you know as i mentioned that's that's sort of the the broader story in which um i do situate judy holiday uh looking at, the, at at moments like that that sort of uh the intersection of of left-wing political activism and entertainment circles so i'm going to continue working on that um, although I'm, I'm hoping to maybe take a little bit of time because another, another subject that I looked at in that research um, a little bit later in the, in the early 1960s is the comedian Dick Gregory, uh, who um, is highly popular as a comedian in the early 1960s, but then very rapidly becomes an activist in the civil rights movement. Um, and I was able to, to procure his FBI files recently um, from the National Archives, so I'm hoping to go through those in more detail and, and turn that into an article as well. <laughs> and Dick Gregory is definitely an interesting person to be considered for for political reasons, and the fact that there are other people like that, but he's act you know made it through that whole period and is, was still relevant in many ways. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's still a very interesting guy. He goes around speaking and, and still still very politically aware, but at the same time a very entertaining guy to just hear hear do a do a radio interview or a TV interview, something like that. So Stefania, what are you working on? So I am starting to brew a little bit further with my dissertation project and which will be you know, different studies of female showrunners from Shonda Rhimes and her, her series to Lena Dunham on Girls to Genji Cohen is what I'm working on right now. She went from Showtime's Weeds to, um, to Orange is the New Black on Netflix. So really interested in that combination of media industries, production cultures, and how we can look at contemporary female uh, representations on TV. Yeah, I think uh, this is where you will probably, we, we, we talked, I mentioned earlier about producers and writers and directors. Mm-hmm. It's now that we're getting into a, a, a system where you can almost, you can get materials from so many different places now more and more. Uh, this is going to make it even more interesting for more, to get away from the more traditional uh, television, particularly into more, unusual or or more realistic in some ways systems yeah it's a really exciting time for tv right now okay deanna um i know obviously we've already talked quite a bit about where your mind is concerning um feminism particularly in the african-american community what uh, are you looking to continue to do uh i am going to continue um, parts of this conversation. So, uh, again, I want to thank Laura <laughs> for getting me to think about um, the media in some different ways and also wanting to relate the work that I do as a historian um, to think about um, women um, in film and in television. Um, so I'm looking at a project or I'm uh, being considered for a project Uh, in which I'm proposing to look at the politics of black women's respectability in the age of the mean girl. And uh, again, you know, we're just seeing so many shows Mm. and uh, just uh, so much um, of the media that's filled with the gossip and the bullying and the insults and the physical violence. And I think that so much of that has tarnished the way that women view and relate to one another And I find it especially problematic for African-American women, given the struggle that they have had in creating positive and historically accurate images of themselves. And given the work that I've done as a historian over the years, it's a stark contradiction to the kinds of respectable models of womanhood that were promoted by black women uh, publicly throughout the 20th century. So I'm going to, going to look at this in more detail. And there are a couple of characters that I'm going to spotlight on reality television. And I'm going to talk about what the kinds of uh, demeaning things that they're doing <laughs> in terms of how they represent women, um, what it means um, to um, those of us that watch these shows and how it affects our society. I mean, I do want to have a little bit of commentary about that uh, again, but also bringing it back historically in terms of how it affects um, our understanding and perceptions um, of African-American women publicly. So that's what 
I plan to do, <laughs> uh, before I get to my book <laughs> on um, um, beauty culture in the, um, in the diaspora right. um, in the Caribbean that I'm going to work on. Sounds like uh, you've got plenty to go, as all writers do. Very few writers have nothing. That's on. right. You have short-term, long-term, very long-term. So sounds like you've got some good ideas and see how, how five years from now, how many of them are in the order and how many other ways you've gone off unexpectedly, probably. Uh, and Amanda, you said you just graduated with your master's. Is that, am I right? Yeah, okay. I w- I'm doing art history and film studies. So I finished the art history part. And now I'm writing my master's thesis for film studies. Uh, is your film studies art uh, thesis going to be somewhat related to what you wrote about? Or are you going on different ways now? Um, it's actually not related at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking um, at self-reflexive Hollywood films. So What Price Hollywood, Sunset Boulevard, Mommy Dearest, all of those. Um, and looking at how Hollywood portrayed the actress on screen. Um and so I'm starting with um, some late silent films, um, like The Extra Girl from 1923, um, and sort of tracing how the actress over time became really violent and um, mad and sort of turned into the, the Joan Crawford mommy dearest in, 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 the, in the early 1980s. So, Well, it's, it's actually, I'm sure you're very happy about the fact that you have a writing credit uh, this far and you know this early quote unquote in your uh, career oh, so to speak to be able to get a writing credit is is a good thing which obviously means you um, wrote something that resonated so that's great and I guess finally Laura what's your future at this point what are you looking to try to continue to do so I'm moving on from smart chicks to tough chicks <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna work through ideas of kick-ass feminism in, uh, in film and young adult novels, especially fairy tale revisions, um, where female characters are vindicating their violent pasts by becoming strong fighters or, in some cases, vigilantes. And so I'm going to be theorizing about whether or not feminists can be kick-ass or if they, uh, you know, if they can actually use the tools of violence and vengeance in the name of feminism or if that's something, you know, altogether different. Um, so those are the questions that I'll be working on. Well, as I say, I would, I really have to say how much I enjoyed this conversation. This was, as I say, it was a bit of an experiment for me to try to get on this many folks at the same time. And the fact that we were able to, to finally work out technical issues and got through it. And I really think you, you all gave a great background of what you're writing or what you were, what you meant as far as what you were writing for this book. But also, I think uh, going forward, um, it's just great information, and I'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy it. So thank you all, and uh, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. I want to greatly thank Laura and the group. I hope you found the discussion to be as fascinating and informative as I did. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.